a lot of this was intended to be a kind of accountability moment and to say to those actors, you made a lot of promises, but who among us can really stand up and say, I'm walking the walk here? Welcome to Global Dispatches. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. This week, in partnership with the United Nations Foundation, we are bringing you daily updates from the 78th United Nations General Assembly. Today is Thursday, September 21st, and it is the final day of this special series. Throughout this week, there has been a notable lack of female leaders. And to be honest, this is a recurring issue in every UN General Assembly I've covered since 2005. By my count, just seven of the 99 presidents or prime ministers to address the General Assembly were women. In our second segment today, I discuss the issue of female political representation with Hibak Osman, founder and CEO of Karama, a movement working in the Arab region on ending violence against women and promoting women's political participation. For our first segment, I speak with Pete Ogden, Vice President for Climate and the Environment at the United Nations Foundation. The Climate Ambition Summit, convened on Wednesday by Antonio Guterres, was the centerpiece of climate diplomacy at UNGA this year. Pete Ogden explains what happened at that summit and how events at the UN and the rest of New York this week are helping to shape the outcome of the next major moment in climate diplomacy, COP28, which kicks off in Dubai in late November. And now here is that conversation. Thanks so much for joining me, Pete. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. I wanted to start with the Climate Ambition Summit convened by the Secretary General on Wednesday. What do you make of the fact that the two biggest emitters, China and the United States, were not represented at the national level at this meeting? I mean, China was not represented at the national level at the UN General Assembly at all. And I think it is pretty notable that, in fact, of the five veto-wielding members of Security Council, the only country that was represented at the national level at this General Assembly was the United States. Unfortunately, President Biden was not able, for schedule reasons and other commitments, to attend the climate summit itself. So we are speaking a day after the big climate centerpiece of the UN General Assembly, which was Antonio Guterres' Climate Ambition Summit. Can you just perhaps set the scene for that summit? Why was it being held in the first place? And then we'll kind of talk through notable speeches and outcomes. So Secretary General um, had actually signaled over a year and a half ago his intention to convene a summit at this particular General Assembly that was going to focus on what it really means for countries and other actors to be acting in a way that really is credibly aligned with what the world is ostensibly seeking, which is a world that is limited in its temperature increases to beneath 1.5 degrees C, and that has adequate resilience built into the system to not be overwhelmed by even the amounts of climate disruption that are going to be attended at 1.5 degrees. 
And I think that was partly inspired coming out of the Glasgow Climate Conference, where you know you saw a huge number of countries and other actors all making all sorts of commitments. And I think a lot of this was intended to be a kind of accountability moment and to say to those actors, you made a lot of promises, but who among us can really stand up and say, I'm walking the walk here? So I know you followed this summit closely. Any particular highlights of note? I think you can't underestimate what a bold move it is for the Secretary General to host a summit in which he made the participation, even at the head of state, to be limited to the head of state. So not accepting anybody but the head of state's participation. If you wanted to speak, that was a requirement, as well as a high threshold in terms of what that head of state wanted to announce. Yeah, it wasn't like an open invitation. No. You had to come with actual like meat on the bone. Yeah, and you know, he wrote a letter to all the heads of state several months ago being very clear that this was not an open invitation. You know, the UN as a body is highly inclusive and a willingness like that to restrict participation in some ways cuts against the kind of natural culture and impulse there. But this was, I think, a case where he felt that that would itself send a, a real statement. And I think it really does. I mean, I think it's a very unique mode for him to be in on this issue. And I think it got a lot of attention as a result. And so of the heads of state who are there, would you cite any one or two as you know being particularly powerful or impactful or having some sort of like resonant in the room? Yeah. I mean, you know, it was well represented. I mean, you had heads of state from Germany to South Africa, Canada, Kenya, the EU. There was a robust amount of participation. And none of these countries, of course, are doing everything perfectly but they're taking the necessary actions now. They put them in a position to stay on that course to ultimately get where they need to be. And, you know, it's interesting to see, and it's not only just at the head of state level, you know, he included in that, for instance, Governor Newsom from the state of California, a, you know, lowercase s head of state. But if it was a country, it'd be like the fifth largest economy in the world greater than that of the United Kingdom. Yeah, many than most of the other countries actually speaking there. And, you know, spoke very passionately. And one notable thread throughout both Governor Newsom's comments, but also Secretary General's and many other member states, was really squarely focusing on fossil fuels. Obviously, fossil fuels are a huge piece of the climate puzzle and really important. But there's become more and more focus on whether countries and the political system at large are really internalizing the political reality of what it would mean to be in a mode of rapid decarbonization. And I think that's something that we'll see, I think, come to the fore again at the big annual climate conference of the parties, the so-called COP, that will happen in Dubai at the end of the year. So I think that's an interesting thread that kind of ran throughout a number of these statements that I think could really come to a head in December. So this Climate Ambition Summit was the centerpiece, at the UN at least, of climate happenings, though it's part of like a broader, what they're calling Climate Week NYC, which is all intended to focus attention on climate change. And as you noted, all ahead of this big climate meeting in Dubai in just a few weeks, COP28. 
What sort of threads, as you mentioned before, have you seen throughout all of these meetings and throughout this week in New York at the UN and beyond that suggest to you whether or not there really is sufficient momentum building for a successful COP28? It's hard to know how much of all of those activities and all of the meetings that happen around climate now as part of the General Assembly week, how much of that is being absorbed and internalized by the countries themselves who, at the end of the day, when you get to the COP itself in Dubai, are the ones who are at the table making the decisions. So you have an UNGA, you know, in addition to the formal meetings, such as yesterday's Climate Ambition Summit, you just have an incredible number of other actors and stakeholders. I mean, we talked about Governor Newsom, but there's you know an incredible number of subnational leaders who come to UNGA to be part of the climate dialogue here. You have enormous number of private sector actors coming here to try to champion their contributions to meeting the climate challenge. So I think that what's interesting to me in particular is, and those are all really important outcomes and discussions, and to some extent are, you know, on the one hand, don't depend on a formal negotiation among 190 plus countries in December for these things to be happening, right? There's a lot outside of this formal process that is real. A lot of people would even say that's really what's real. That's where it's played out. It's not what these negotiators craft in these jargon-filled documents, but that is what happens at the COP ultimately on a formal matter. And so one of the interesting things is how much all of this dialogue, all these other actors, how much of that's able to seep into the kind of consciousness of countries and makes them think, you know, yeah, we can press farther. You know, the political demand signal is strong enough and we then are empowered to push the formal system further than we would otherwise. Mm. There's so many moments now because of how climate has matured and moved up the international diplomatic calendar. You know, countries are coming together at the G20, at the G7s, and an endless number of different configurations and talking about climate. But the huge civil society presence coexisting with the formal process of the UN, other than the COP itself, this week of General Assembly is the only other place where you have that level of intense sort of cross-fertilization of those two communities. Yeah. And also, you know, this is the first time that civil society is let back in the UN building since COVID, which itself I I think is significant and important for what you call cross-fertilization. Now, you mentioned private sector, civil society, and subnational leaders. Is there anyone else who, you know, you think those of us who are generally interested in climate issues and, and foreign policy, international affairs, that caught your attention this week that you think we ought to be paying closer attention to? In the context of the summit, I think Governor Newsom's statements were extremely well received. Like huge applause, right? Huge applause, probably the largest applause of anybody. And they were very much focused on the need to transition away from fossil fuels. And I think it's just notable that that has become such a focal point going into a cop that's being hosted. You know, in fact, it's not been lost on anybody by a major fossil fuel energy producer and exporter in the United Arab Emirates. And how to square the fact that you have countries 
that are doing tremendous amounts, like the United States, domestically on climate change at every level. I mean, not just the you know historic climate spending that's been injected in the economy through the Inflation Reduction Act, but all the private sector actors, all the governors like Governor Newsom. How do you then square that also with the fact in which we're an enormous fossil fuel producer and exporter? And there's lots of other countries in Europe too, which is struggling both to rapidly wean itself off of fossil fuels, but at the same time, because of where it is in the transition, can't afford to do that quite tomorrow. So there's been a lot of focus on, given those two realities, what is a credible transition look like, right? Knowing that time is short, we do have you know, a little time to make this adjustment as quickly and efficiently as possible. So what does that look like, right? Where do you need to be next year? Where do you need to be the year after? And I think there's just been more and more talk about how we know who's taking the right actions today, even if no one's quite at the finish line yet. Pete, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. I know this is a very busy week and thanks for chatting with me. Thanks so much. Always great to talk to you. Big thank you to Pete Ogden. And now for the final segment of this series, I speak with Hibak Osman, founder and CEO of Karama. Hibak, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you. My pleasure. This is our final segment of the week, and it's on a vitally important topic. And I'm really glad to be speaking with you about it to wrap up this daily series that we've been producing for the podcast. Because you know, it speaks to, I think, one important through line throughout events at New York this week, which is really the poultry representation that we have seen by women leaders. You know, watching these events, I did see a number of male leaders like affirm their support for female participation. For example, I saw Cyril Ramaphosa, the president of South Africa, note that he was leading an all-female delegation. But how do you interpret a statement like that? And how do you interpret just the low levels of female political participation at the UN this week? You know, it's very sad and it's not the first time this has been happening forever. There is a low or non-representation of women. And you know what? There are absolutely, it's the same thing, uh, you know, the United Nations is also a reflection of what's happening on the ground in each of these countries. So there is a low representation, for example, of women in key decision-making positions within the UN, including the Security Council. And you know, this lack of uh, what you call gender Priority also hinders the organization's ability to address gender. The issues that are related to gender are absolutely ineffective, and the UN has been ineffective on this. They have so many resolutions of different things, but you know none of them is binding. It is you know under the discretion of governments, you know, and that's not going anywhere. Whenever there is a resolution, there is absolutely no way of implementing it because the United Nations cannot enforce it at all. So one of the problems is, is the UN is not lacking resolutions of making sure that women are represented 
but unfortunately, they cannot enforce it. It's still under the discretion of governments. Yeah, I mean, you know, you did see like a lot of lip service paid to female participation. And of course, in like every event, like there were no like all male panels, you know, like that's no longer like a thing that exists around the UN. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as you noted, beyond like the lip service, in terms of actual policies being implemented, it's still really lacking. They, of course, we need the UN, and it's great to have a dialogue and to bring everyone together. But the fact of the matter is the institution is a member state institution. So all the problems that the member states have, of course, is also a reflection of their policies and participation at the United Nations. If a government does not have women in high positions who can articulate what the policy is and who can influence and who are really respected, they're not going to make any difference when they come to the United Nations. They're going to have a lip service, lip service, and the UN will say resolution, this and that. So nothing is going to change. You know, you need change within governments, you know, and once you have that, then maybe there will be a change at this institution, which is a member state institution. You know, like I said at the beginning, there is also a lack of women in important positions at the United Nations. That's one. Two, when governments come, they talk to each other. You don't have civil society and women's groups and activists at the table so that at least they can talk about what their passion is, what the concerns are, and what can be done. So I'm not saying that it's not important to have Bonga, and I'm not saying that, you know, a woman are not there, but I'm saying we have to do better than that. Were there any events this week, any meetings you participated in that left you potentially maybe more hopeful that things are changing in the right direction? Well, first of all, let me say something, you know, hopeful, which is when you talk about, you know, gender and gender equality, it's a commitment for a long term, you know, and it's a process that needs to change. We just need it to speed up that process. I was very happy to participate at the Generation Equality Forum for a simple reason, because you had governments and civil society at the same table discussing the issues. So anytime you have the government and civil society on equal terms at the table, it's very good because there is support, there's familiarity, you know, everyone is listening to everyone. And this only happens in women's gatherings, to be honest. On the Gender Equality Forum, for those who are not familiar, you can explain what it is and why you found this meeting particularly significant. It is very significant because this is one of those few times that you actually have civil society and governments at the same table. You know, going to the United Nations, you know, with the civil society, it's very, very difficult. You have to have this idea and you have to have that idea and you have to have, you know, the invitation and all that. So sometimes you would feel that, you know, civil society and marginalized groups are really discouraged to participate in these hallways when the United Nations is taking place. but. The good thing about the generation equality is really it's a forum where you have the civil society and at the same time you have governments to talk about exactly what's happening. So the compact is basically, you know, they talk about accountability, inclusivity, partnership with governments. And I think this is one of the very few times that you actually have those two groups that need to work together in one place. Going forward in like the weeks and months after UNGA, what will you be looking towards that will suggest to you whether or not we are collectively making progress towards more gender-inclusive political participation? 
I think this is when the civil society really feels that, hey, we are in the same place as everybody else, and we are going to influence these policymakers. And sometimes it's even better that you feel that you can influence your own government in New York than you would in your own country. So I'm looking forward to a continuation of holding governments accountable and making sure that we advocate for inclusivity and women to be at the you know front and center of this governments and, and policymakers and that civil society is listened. And, and next year, we will be doing more, looking at what we have achieved, what we haven't, and to look forward to pushing that. So it's good to have this uh, you know, space to do all of that. And I look forward to catching up with you again next year to see whether or not, indeed, we've made the progress that you articulated. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Inshallah. Hope has become survival for all of us, you know? Inshallah. Yes. Take care. Thank you very much. Big thank you to Hibok and Pete for speaking with me today and to all of our guests throughout this very busy week around the United Nations. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. I hope you enjoyed this series. If you want even more UN and world news coverage, be sure to stick around for our regular programming at Global Dispatches and sign up for our newsletter at globaldispatches.org. Thank you all, and we'll see you next time.